1: This is episode 144 of the Intercooler podcast with me Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. Um, we're covering lots of ground this week. We start by reviewing a couple of quite important new or newish performance cars, um, and then we try and do something we don't do very often on this podcast. We try and have a grown-up discussion. Uh, we talk about EVs and the reality of living with an EV and who they do suit, who they don't suit. Um, it's an important discussion. Um, so, yeah, we get onto that. We start by talking about the M4 CSL and the Honda Civic Type R. Uh, enjoy the episode. Plenty to get through this week, Andrew, because we're talking about a couple of cars important, new ish performance cars that we've been driving. Yeah. Um, and also, we're going to try and be adults a little bit later on in this episode and have what we hope... Grown-ups. It's a grown-up discussion. It's quite frightening, isn't it? About electric cars. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't come naturally to us, but we'll give it a go. Um, so, I, I saw from your Twitter over the weekend, you've been knocking about in the BMW M4 CSL. Um, yes. It looks like you took it on your your test route that you take all test cars. Yep. <laughs> I haven't driven this car yet. Um, I'm hoping to have a go in it this week, but... yeah. It's one of those cars from BMW that um, I find it quite easy to be a bit cynical about yeah. um, because it's called CSL. It's actually more than 1,700 kilos, which yes. is not exactly L, is it? L for lightweight. Um, no. But this is 2023, and there are now three-ton passenger cars on the road. Um, it also, I don't love the way it looks, um, and I've driven a few similarly configured high-performance BMW M cars recently, that i haven't really got along with however there are there are other you know i'm thinking the m5 cs which is a triumph so i'm trying to figure out where in amongst where all sits. of that this, the csl sits yeah. yeah i mean
0: okay so also you know we have to remember sort of the last really nutty m4 which was the gts yeah which is one of the worst bmws i've ever driven
1: mm-hmm.
0: terrible <laughs> terrible 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 thing um so actually, if I'm honest with you, for all the reasons you've stated, um, I came to this car with my sort of level of expectation under fairly close control. Also, what I was terrified about was these things come on Cup 2Rs as standard. Yeah, cut 2Rs? Cup 2Rs. So this is Michelin's oh. ultimate track day tyre. Um, and where I am at the moment, it is very cold and very wet. Mm. And I thought, well, if this thing turns up on that, I mean, I'm going to basically learn more about myself and my instinct to survival than i'm going to learn anything about the car anyway it didn't thankfully thankfully there's the option tire is Mm. a michelin pilot um 4s so um so it turned up on sensible tires which was great so when was it uh we're recording this on monday so yesterday morning as i always do sunday morning you know up before the dawn out on the car um i mean it was still fairly um so if you hear me sniffing, and sneezing my way through this podcast, um, there's a reason for that, which is that I've got a cold. So apologies in advance. Um, yeah, but back to the CSL. Uh, still pretty suboptimal conditions. Still very cold. Still very wet, and still a yeah, pretty stiff car. Mm. Um, and it doesn't matter what tires you have got. You know, as I'm sure lots of people know, you know, one of the reasons that you know Alpines perform so beautifully well in wet weather conditions is not just that they're light; it's because they're soft as well. And you yeah. need that. Um, you need that suspension movement you know to be able to cut through the crap and you know and get the traction and everything else and the m4 csl hasn't so um i liked it much more than i thought i was going to i really did um i thought it was just going to be one of these things which just sort of bang about and of no ride quality and ping off every bump and slip and slither and slide mm. its way around the place in a not particularly engaging or rewarding way uh, and i would end up getting cheesed off with it um and taking the the easy route home I didn't um I really given the conditions and it would be you know you get such a different driving experience in a car like that wouldn't you if you drove it on a warm dry road it'd be oh, completely yeah. different so you know bearing in mind that this was very very far from its you know preferred environment it was pretty good um so for a start it rides Mm, i mean not brilliantly but well enough mm. which the m4 gts didn't the m4 gts is one of the worst riding cars i've ever driven and that's not me being sort of middle-aged and wanting my comfort it's actually about the dynamic driving experience because if you're being kicked about inside the car if it is hopping and skipping and jumping off everything that it hits that's a poor handling car mm. and it gets in the way of your of your driving enjoyment um and the M4 CSL is not like that. It's it's good enough. I could quite see myself, you know, doing a big trip out to the Nürburgring, and it wouldn't be a pain at all doing that. And um, and so I I appreciated that. Um, there's so much configurability on it. You know, you can configure not just the dampers, but the transmission and the steering and the brakes. You know, the feel of everything is configurable. And what on, on one hand, you know, we always go on, don't we, about how important it is to be able to set the car up to the way you want it to be on the other hand i'm thinking this is all just electronics doing this this yeah. is all software maps this mm. isn't sort of you know driver to car to road mechanical linkages um and so there is this sort of artificiality about it too um and although you know it is you could you could tell instantly every change you make um, and they are and they do feel like real changes it does feel a little bit Uh, arcade-ish as a result but um the engine what is it 540 horsepower from that three liter straight six absolutely mega so much torque so drivable it's not all sort of packed up the top end Um, very good throttle response Um, on quicker roads it's really really good the damping is superb it's lovely and poised Uh, it's 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 a nice car to drive like that the it has a couple of drawbacks um in slower corners you mean you, know, you cannot escape the weight this is a mm. car that weighs half a ton more than half a ton more than a a you know i happen to have it i'm not going to an a110 at the moment um and you get in a car like that which is you know so sporting uh but it weighs half a ton more. it weighs an entire catering you could know, park my catering and the alpine next to each other on the same set of scales and they still come out as less than one m4 csl Uh, and it's not so much of a problem in the quicker stuff, but in the slower customer, you you do notice that heft. Uh, I think its biggest drawback is the slusher. Eight-speed automatic gearbox. Yeah. Mm. I
1: mean, come on, guys. CSL, it just seems wrong, doesn't it? An eight-speed slusher in a CSL. It does. Well, there's a reason for it seems wrong. It's wrong. Mm.
0: Mm. Um, It's it's as good as an eight-speed slusher can get, but it's not that bang, 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 which you want. Mm. No. Um, you know, let alone a manual. So yeah, so it's a Well, they're making a thousand, aren't they? And a hundred are coming to the UK and they're all gone. So it's 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 sort of sort of slightly academic. I think what I think what it is quite interesting about this car, and I'm sure they didn't plan it this way. Um, but there is a sort of space has opened up for it. Because the nine eleven GT three has gone all hardcore, um and has absolutely sacrificed for want of a less excruciating word roadability um for track poise um, the m4 csl actually sort of gets into that space where the mm. gt3 now it's not as good a car as a gt3 if you think of a 991 gen 2 gt3 touring you know even without a manual gearbox you know the m4 csl is not as good a car as that but it's that kind of car it is You I mean you could daily drive it you know it's only got two seats um which you know you have to get your head around um but it's it's a perfectly practical it's got all the stuff you want it's got seat heaters and cruise control and decent now all the stuff that you know manufacturers tend to sort of rip out of these cars and then put back as no cost options because they want to keep the weight down um it's all there um so it's perfectly civilized big boot um i really liked it and if that is damning with faint praise Mm. that's probably fair enough because what this isn't is some kind of, you know, landmark BMW M car. Would I, yesterday have yesterday morning, have had, on the same tyres, more fun in an M2 comp? Probably. In a manual mm. M2 comp? Definitely. And this is, you know, a £128,000 car. Um, so, yeah. I mean, good, but not great. And, mm. you know, better than I expected it to be, which is positive.
1: Not as good as I hoped it might be. There you go yeah it's interesting there's no question that bmw can still do, bmw m they can still do it you know you drive an m2 comp or an m2 cs or an m5 cs and they are they are landmark cars for bmw m they are superb they're so much fun to drive but also technically so brilliant yeah. um and it does sound as though the m4 csl is kind of partway towards that but doesn't for whatever reason take that next step maybe it is the gearbox maybe it is the weight um but yeah curious thing um so i've been driving another what i think is quite a significant new performance car the new fl5 honda civic type r are you um, on top of your fls and eks and uh, only as of last week yeah just because they had them all there and i um i yeah so how does it go so the one which is the first one able... was the first one the ek9 no the oh yes it was but it wasn't available in the uk that one yeah um, so the first, that, that was the screamer wasn't it that was the ridiculous yeah um i know jethro Bovingdon will actually laugh at this talk output figure it's amazing a talk figure can be funny because it does deliver 118 pounds let me let me guess where it is where
0: it's delivered go on then so it's going to rotate
1: in a bit i'm going to go seven
0: one
1: <laughs> i don't know if it's exactly it's beyond six and a bit yeah so yeah. it's way way up there um, and i know that whenever jethro sees that number he he laughs um <laughs> because it is you, you well you see a figure like that and you just know how the car's going to drive how the engine is going to perform it's going to be you're going to have to rev the nuts off it which is great you know in a, in a little light car oh that's brilliant
0: have you um, sorry this is very patronizing but i just don't know whether you have it. Have you driven one of those early vtec cars where they where it changes yeah the dc2
1: integra type r
0: yeah, so 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 that's um the VTEC on those cars worked by there was a piston inside the camshaft, wasn't, and it literally changed the cams operating on the on the valves. So mm. and you could it was like flicking a switch, and she go, mm. it suddenly go bang yeah. when literally a completely different cam profile with different duration and different lift would suddenly take over. And at 5,500 revs, whenever this thing, took, this thing cut in, you just basically
1: you find yourself driving a different car to the one you were driving mm. half a second ago. It was and brilliant. It is, in the right kind of car, it is fantastic, isn't it? It's really brilliant. fun. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the following two Civics still had really revvy NA engines. The, you know put me on the spot now. EP3 um, was the first that was available in the UK and built in the UK. And then um, FN2. You lost me already. FK, <coughs> F-K-2, I think. It's like, being, it's, it's like BMWs.
0: If it begins with an E, I can cope. Yeah. But yeah, the Fs and the, the, I think the moment, Gs... The moment BMW start
1: talking about Fs and G numbers, I just yeah. can't cope with them at all. Yeah, I've, I've lost them there. I've lost them. So uh, I will forget those Civic Type R numbers. I might may even have got those wrong. Forgive me if I did. But anyway, the point being, we're now on FL5. Um, this car's no longer built in the UK, so it's the first since the EP3. Um, several generations ago that's not uk built is, is that one reason why it's so ridiculously expensive it's one reason um but actually it's supply that's the problem um so it is now 47 grand basic for a um, honda civic it's the, there's a there's a, an option called carbon pack um you can guess what that gives you just bits of carbon um and that takes it over fifty thousand pounds so that's an
0: that's a, sorry i, I know we, we, we spend our life talking about a 110s on this podcast but that's an a <laughs> 110 or
1: a honda civic yeah 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 it is isn't it yeah it it is it's it's bananas it's a cayman or a honda civic it is bananas how these cars have become so expensive the thing is honda uk has priced it there because it's going to shift every single one it can and supply is going to be so choked that people will be flipping these cars i'm sure i think we'll see them go for over the next few months i think we'll see where people are flipping honda civics i think 60k goodness whether me. or not it'll last i don't know but i think we'll you, see do, do,
0: oh, sorry, i'm going to, i'm gonna go completely off down a tangent yeah but i just haven't seen one have you yet seen a gr86 for sale in the uk i haven't but i've been really interested so, yeah somebody pays 30 grand for one of those what could mm. you flip it for
1: yeah they'll 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 be flipped massively no question no i saw one in the uk for the first time on this event actually it's a press car lovely looking little thing yeah um They they'll get flipped i haven't seen one for sale yet but they're coming aren't they um, the Civic Type R deliveries begin, I think it's next month. So keep your eye on the classifieds. They'll be up there. Yeah. Um, but the issue with this car from a supply point of view is that, well, there are the usual semiconductor things that are causing so many troubles across the industry. Um, but the big issue is emissions regulations. So Honda UK, they have yeah. to balance their fleet carbon average um, across all their cars. Do they um, do that in if, the UK? Yeah, yeah. The okay. UK has to do this. So, for every relatively high-emitting Civic Type R they sell in the UK, they have to sell X number of Honda Es, you know, electric Honda Es and little Jazzes and so on that are very low-emitting. Um, and it just means that they have to choke supply; they have to limit supply, otherwise they face massive fines. Um, and it, it becomes more difficult in 2024 when they can no longer offset their High-emitting combustion cars against EVs in the same yeah. way that they can now. So um, they will only be able to offset petrol and diesel cars against other petrol and diesel cars. So supply is only going to become more and more difficult. Um, and that's why they're able to charge forty-seven grand for it because and that's they'll, they'll, be, sell in they'll sell everyone they'll sell them all. Is there, is there a limit?
0: Is there a limit to the number they bring in? Have they said they, they've said there's an allocation,
1: haven't they? It's hundreds per year. Yeah. Um, and actually. There, there was this extraordinary slide in Honda's presentation um, ahead of the launch event. And it showed the EP3 and the one that followed. I think that's FN2. Certainly the EP3 sold as many as 5,000 plus a year in the UK. Goodness. Um, not every year. I think it peaked over 5,000 one or two years. But it was consistently 4,000 a year. Um, yeah. And now they're looking at a few, a hundred, few hundred a year yeah and it's partly because the market has changed and the likes of audi bmw mercedes have come in with their own very powerful are they even hot hatches i don't know it's a different discussion but you know comparable cars yeah um but also the those earlier civics they were less than 20 grand less than 20 grand this one if you tick that carbon box is a 50 grand car so inevitably volumes are lower um and so they're going to shift every single one that they can. There aren't going to be, be many of them. They will be flipped, I'm sure. Um, so it's a it's a very different proposition to the Civic Type Pass that we've had before. Um, <clears throat> and this fo- this FL5 follows the FK8, which I thought was a titan among hot hatches. I thought it was a fantastic car. It was the hot hatch. It yeah. was.
0: It was certainly, I mean, I think you could possibly argue the toss in its generation between that and the uh, Mark 7.5, or either the GTI or the Golf R, but actually as a thing just to drive, mm. that was the greatest hot hatch of of of, of modern
1: times. Yeah, absolutely yeah. superb. And it was, for me, held back by two points. It didn't have a custom dri- customizable driving mode, which sounds like a boring adenoidal thing to say, but it meant that in comfort mode, you had this lovely ride quality, lovely plush fluid suspension. And our terrible B-roads, it worked beautifully. It just soaked up the road. Yeah. When you look at this thing, it looks so extreme. You just think, well, it's going to ride like a skateboard. But it yeah. didn't. The trouble is, in that comfort mode, the engine is totally flat, or rather the engine mapping is totally flat. Yeah. Um, and so you lose the excitement of the engine, which is a pity because it's such a great motor. Um, and so, fine, you turn it into sport or plus R mode, and the engine comes alive again, but then the suspension goes rock hard, and you lose that lovely. Have you ever got into right?
0: a car in the UK which does have which does let you choose, and not gone for comfort suspension and
1: sport powertrain? No, you just do it all the time. You, don't just, you? just do it automatically, don't you? And when, yeah. you it, it is just the setup. Yeah, and when you've got a customer, a, a mode where you, where you can save your preferred setup, it's always that. It's of course. always engine up, suspension down. Yep. and away you go. Off you go. it it might be a unique you know unique to the uk because our roads really are pretty awful you Um, know i
0: I, I actually i i think actually most places i go um i just do that automatically and yeah some places where the roads are faster and smoother it works less well but even so you're not on a racetrack here you're always going to have undulations you're going to have a bit of body movement and you just you know you just don't want it to be tied down and you know uncomfortable and it springs anyway Uh, did you like it was it
1: any good so, um, quickly on the FK8. So, the, you know, it, because it didn't have the custom dri- customizable driver mode, it was always yeah. compromised. Whichever mode you chose, something was compromised, engine or suspension. And then there's the way the car looked. It's a totally subjective point, but I, I couldn't get on with the way that car looked. You know, outlandish styling. Um, I get some people quite like that about it, but I, honestly, I I couldn't have it as my car because of the way it looked. Maybe that's styling, Really? But, so yeah. you would stop, even if it was, so I'm not trying to put words you do out there, but even if there
0: were, even if it, you know, even if it drove like, I don't know, a, a Cayman GT4, <laughs> um, would looks alone would stop you having it. I don't think it would ever stop me because I don't think I care enough. Um, you know, I'm the least fashion conscious person you'll ever meet. And also, I, you know, I take the view that actually, the only person who really matters is me.
1: Mm. Um, and I spend the time on the inside, looking out. <laughs> So uh, I think I'm not worried about brand or image. You know, that's why I had, <laughs> to mention it again, that's why I had an Alpine, you know. If if I wanted to show off, I'd have had the Porsche, but I, I literally don't care about that stuff, so I was quite happy with the Alpine. But it, I I think I would lose something in spotting it from my living room window and just thinking, oh, that's a bit of a mess. Yeah, um, I th- Not fair enough. I think it probably would bother me. Maybe if I had it in black, which is the best colour for it, I could live with it, but... Um, I don't know, certainly it would give me reason to hesitate. Um, And then you look at this new FL5, it has the customizable driving mode. Well done, that was probably very straightforward incorporating that. It also looks, in my view, so much better. It's a subtler, cleaner, simpler design. Way, way more handsome in my view, so it fixes that problem. And it fixes the driving mode issue. And so you think, yippee, here we go, it's going to be superb. And actually, it is superb. It's very, very good. It's, it's still got that superb engine and that peerless manual gear shift. It's actually even better now. The engine feels livelier than it ever did before. Um, it's got a bit more power. It's a bloody fast thing. It's still got fantastic seating position, great seats. The interior is a bit smarter now. Um, but they've made it a more narrow-minded car, a more singular-focused car. Doesn't ride like the previous one at all. It's actually quite different in that regard. So you no longer have that wonderful, plush, supple feel yeah. on our challenging roads. That's gone. And it's not terrible, but it's it's more like other hot hatches, you know, just knocking you about. Yeah. Sort of jiggling all over the place. And even in normal driving, the duality of the old car, which was freakishly comfortable just as an everyday family car, it's gone. So is it
0: what am i trying to say is it the same sort of difference that albeit a completely different part of the market uh we found between the 991 and the 992 gt3s
1: possibly yeah i hadn't thought about that um yeah it's it's kind of similar it is kind of similar it doesn't ruin it and it's it's not unbearable as an everyday yeah. car at all but you lose that point of distinction you lose that quality you know yeah. that's it's gone and what they've done is they've just built a more serious more focused more less broadly defined car yeah you know, they built the GT3 yeah. yeah they they've built a better track car yeah um <laughs> although we drove it on track when i the the launch event was down in Hampshire and we were on Thruxton um a slippery greasy Thruxton which is a frightening place at the best yeah. of times um and we started in the fk8 just as a it's a curious decision on the part of honda uk again as yeah. a refresher or something actually all it did in those conditions was serve to remind me that the fk8 was a fantastic car and actually preferable <laughs> to the new one you know when the track is slippery you still want a degree of compliance yeah um and I, the old I, I, one steers better as well. The new one doesn't have the same so crispness in the steering.
0: The, the FK8 because obviously you couldn't have the FK8 in the mode you wanted, particularly in those sorts of conditions. So you'd have had to have had that in sport. So even with the sport suspension, was it more compliant than the new one? Was it FL5 with FL5, in yeah. its in its comfort
1: setting? Um, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, 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 yeah. Certainly. Um, yeah, there's no question. And You you know, the new one, I'm sure on a dry track, it will. once the weather improves, it will go to the Nürburgring and it will break the production car front-wheel drive lap record. It's going to. I've no doubt about that at all. It's a more serious car. And when you're really up it on a dry track, I'm sure the changes they've made pay dividends. I'm sure it's way quicker. Um, But I see this happening now. You know, it was the same with the last Golf R, the 20 years that I drove recently. A more narrow-minded, more focused car. And I just it's as though these feel like the end of days for engineers and they're just going sod it let's just build the most fearsome the fastest the meanest cars that we can um which is great you know they are building phenomenal they're building the fastest hot hatches around a circuit that we've ever seen but you inevitably lose something on the road particularly which 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 is where you use these cars where you use them is is there a, is there a really nutty oe tire they can bolt onto it to go and do a Nurburgring tire time d- there wasn't actually any anyone there who would know that there weren't any engineers or experts there so i don't know that but it comes on a ps4 s okay um, so they'll so so so, so, they'll, so they'll, they'll put a cup 2r on it won't they and they might well do yeah and they'll go and do some storming lap time and it'll yeah. be you know if you're a racing driver on a dry track it'll be fantastic i've no doubt about that but you lose something on the road and i just i think that's such a pity um, because it seems like it's actually easier. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me like it would be easier to create a focused car that yeah. is really optimised for dry weather, for smooth roads, for racetracks. It's harder to build something that works beautifully on a wet, bumpy is. British B road and is brilliant on track, which the the FKA it was. So um, actually the, the new car, it's, you know, In its element, it's a fantastic thing. But the point is, it's actually no better overall than the previous one, even though it looks so much better, even though it has that individual driving mode. Um, So I think, given the choice, I'd actually rather drive the previous one, even though I dislike the way it looks so much. And then you have to factor in the price difference. It's fifteen grand more expensive than Honda UK was asking for the previous car a year and a half ago. It's a lot, isn't it? It's it's an entire <laughs> yeah. car more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a huge step up. Um, yeah, but you know, I, it's a in its element. I'm I'm sure it's absolutely fantastic to drive. But I happen to prefer the previous one. Um, oh, just we before on? we,
0: well, just before we get onto EVs, on.
1: yeah.
0: Can you lend me forty three thousand pounds?
1: <laughs> what do you want to buy?
0: So there's a chap who I know called Simon Lane. Oh, I saw. Yeah. He's an engineer up at Lotus. And he has a beautiful mustard yellow Lotus Esprit GT3 1998 Mm. car. Now, the GT3, um, if anybody is struggling to remember which particular Esprit I'm talking about, because let's face it, there have been so many, was the sort of the club sport GT3. So it had a 2-litre engine rather than a 2.2. It was never very fast, but it was super light, and when I drove it back in period, goodness me, 25 years ago, I just thought this is what I want an Esprit to be. And I've absolutely, other than a Sport 300, which are bazillions, that's the Esprit I want. And I just happen to know this particular car and this particular owner, and I know how well looked after it would be. And I just, I just, honestly, I've, I've spent the weekend thinking about nothing else and sort of trying to do madness, <laughs> And also, and also, and also, trying to work out what the hell I do with it. Really? Because what am I going to do with a GT3 Esprit? I'm, I know, it doesn't fit my life at all. It'll be like all those other really nice cars that I've owned over time, which, you know, whose purpose in my life becomes just to make me feel guilty about not driving them. Yeah. And I have this sort of self-destruct button within me. And I suddenly, my eye will suddenly be caught by something. And I just think, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. Because... It's not just a GT3. It's a GT3 from the right place, with the right owner, with the right provenance. And it also, I shouldn't say this, because I'm not going to be able to buy it. I can't afford to buy it, and I haven't got the money, and I don't know what to do with it. But it also doesn't strike me as being desperately expensive. Mm. And Um, it's not going to lose any money, is it? It's not going to lose any money. There are 13. 13?
1: 13. Uh, Well, in this this spec, yeah. Bloody hell. In the UK. 13, 1-3. So you could have, for 50 grand, you could have that and... I don't know a seven-year-old golf, probably older, <laughs> yeah. or a, you know, an older three-series or something. Or yeah. you can have an FL5 Civic Type R with the carbon pack. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, that does. Was... If nothing else, it does highlight how expensive even new hot hatches have become. Yeah. It is nuts, and I think I think the time will come. We'll we'll look back at this and we'll think, really, mm. oh, yeah. staggering, isn't it? Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. Move on. Okay. So this was. There's been a lot of discussion about EVs, particularly across social media, um, including our platforms, um, and I, I think it was kicked off not the weekend just gone, but the one before, by an article by Giles Corran in the Times, yeah, um, writing about his departed Jaguar I-Pace, um, yes. scathing, because well, just to sort of sum it up, um, he had this Jaguar I-Pace for a while. Um, it was unreliable. Uh, he tried to use it as his everyday family car, going away on holiday and so on with the with the family. And several times, it let him down. Da- him down, or the charging network let him down. Um, and it sounds like it was a disaster. He hated it, and he, basically, he was explaining why the EV revolution is therefore going to hit the buffers. Um, yeah. And he doesn't hold back. And you know, some people have pointed out that, well, actually, what he's confused is. It, all EV ownership with one troublesome Jaguar, um, but you, it, of course he's going to write it that way. It's for a generalist Sunday t- or t- Times audience. He's got, he's supposed to be provocative and entertaining, isn't he? So well, he's, he's not he going managed, to hold he, back, and he certainly manages that. I mean, he's, he, he does. He's a, yeah. I mean, he he is a polemicist,
0: but yeah. he's a bloody funny one. Yeah, um, he is, and he does make some good points. Um, he does. So um, yeah, so as a result well not as a result of that but because it is something that I have been thinking about uh, I just put out a tweet um, on the TI Twitter account um, if you don't follow us please do um, yeah. because we are we're going to be making more use of it and we're just we're really we're just going to be using it to find out what
1: you think about stuff um, yeah, it, one example of that Sorry, it's go on. at at, the, um, at underscore the intercooler or just search the intercooler you'll find it there
0: yeah um and, you know, one of the things that we wanted to
1: know, because there's just
0: so much stuff out there, and, I, and I'm aware of this. I mean, we live in an increasingly divided society, don't we? And I, I'm just aware of these sort of rival factions starting to grow up between oh, sort of God. the EV evangelists um, and the EV sceptics. Uh, and I just wanted to know, you know, we sort of read individual articles like the one that Giles Corrin wrote, and we thought, my goodness, that's terrible, Um And, you know, and you hear stories, someone was tweeting pictures of 40 Teslas queued up at T-Bay for, you know, for whatever. Um, And so, you know, I I just uh, put out a tweet saying, you know, if you don't own own an EV, are you more or less likely to buy one now than you were a year ago? And if you do own an EV, are you glad with your decision? Do you bitterly regret it or or whatever? Um, And the response was amazing. Hundreds of people got back to us. And the answers were not exactly what I thought. Um, And I just thought it was a really interesting dialogue. Um, And okay, all we were doing were polling people who follow us on Twitter. So, so, you know, it's hardly, you know, a a rigorous uh, exercise we did. But I would say that generally speaking, the people who had bought EVs, no, not even generally speaking, overwhelmingly speaking, the people who had bought EVs were glad that they had. Hmm. And there wasn't this sort of buyer's remorse going on, which I'd sort of expected. People saying, well, yeah, I did this because it seemed like the right thing to do. And I thought it would fit my life. But actually, the reality is, um, the range isn't anything like People claim uh, you can't charge the bloody things. The charging network is is broken. More and more EVs are pileing onto the roads every day. Things are only getting worse. You know, give me back my Golf Diesel. There was very little of that. There was an awful lot of this has changed my life. You know, um, it fits my life perfectly. I've had my EV for a year now. I've been seriously delayed once um, and I'm never going back. And it was really interesting. And, and on the other side of the mm. debate, there were people who don't own EVs. They seem to have gone the other way. There are people who are sort of saying, well, I have thought about it, but then I've seen all this stuff about the queues, and I've heard all these stories about the network. Um, and I'm sure you know a lot of them would have read Giles' story. And I just thought, no way, I'm going to hang on to my petrol stroke diesel, even maybe stroke hybrid, um, you know, until the government physically forces it out of my cold dead hands. And um, because they look at it as a some kind of nightmare. Um, so what can we conclude from this? Well, I, I think the, the takeaway that I took from it is that, well, two things. Firstly, things are factionalizing even more. Yeah, and you massively. Are, things are splitting into rival camps. And people in those camps are tribal now that is what is happening and when people become tribal about things it's like whether you support the Labour Party or the Conservative Party or Manchester City or Manchester United there is a sort of you know there is an element of don't blind me with the facts comes into it on all sides and people just decide what they want and what they like and they won't be told otherwise um so that's that is happening um at a more sort of basic practical level, I think that for people who have found EVs that work for them, they really work for them. But, and I think this is a massive but, I think every single person who came on and replied to that tweet and had had a positive EV experience, every one of them talked about being able to charge it at home. Yeah. Um, Nobody was charging it it said that the charging it from lampposts was a great experience or that they just charged it you know at public charges Uh, and i think that there are two points to be made there the one one point the most obvious point is you know you have to have off street parking to be able to do that so you either have to live in the middle of nowhere and then that throws up the question of whether an ev is you know i live in the middle of nowhere and you know i i would actually like the idea if I could, for instance, get to Heathrow and back without having to charge the car of having an EV because it's just a motorway all the way and it's quiet and you know and everything else, and you know, I'm absolutely not against that idea. But I live in the middle of nowhere and it's simply not practical. Um, or if you live in a town, um, you know, you have to be wealthy. You have to, you know, you have to be able to buy a place big enough where you can park a car and have a charger and so on and so forth. And the vast, vast, vast majority of people are not in that position, so it remains a niche product. But I think the second thing is. Everybody goes on about home charging, partly because it's convenient, but also, and I would say mainly, because it's so cheap. It's so affordable. Um, and they go, "Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, who would ever charge it? You know, at the motorway where you get charged a bazillion pounds per kilowatt? Um, they'd be just charge it at home because it costs peanuts. Fine for now. Just know, wait. Just wait. Um, you know, the government. I think the government raises seventeen billion pounds a year through fuel tax revenue." that all goes away. They can't afford to give that up. Everyone is charging at home. So they're going to have to find a way of taxing the electricity you put on your car at home. Now, they might do it through taxing. Well, I've got a pod point here, you know, and they'll be able to tell what comes out of that. Tax that. Okay. well, people just plug in three pin plugs. So how do you distinguish between the electricity that goes into your kettle and the electricity that goes into your car? And I think the only way... Well, I don't know. There are many, many people who are brighter and better informed on the subject than me. But I think to me, the most obvious way they're going to do that is through road pricing and you'll just be taxed per journey. Um, At which stage that game's up. So I don't know whether people who have EVs now, um, I wouldn't say they're living in La La Land at all, but, you know, it clearly works for them now. But that does not mean that that situation is going to endure going mm. forward. I very I strongly suspect that it won't and that the cost of EV ownership and we all know how unbelievably expensive EVs are to buy anyway. You know, I'll remind you that the basic cheapest electric Vauxhall Corsa you can buy is 31,000 pounds. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> a, a Fiesta I think is 17 or 18. So you're talking like half as much car again, half as much again um for, you know, an electric hatchback. So, you know, For me, I I, I think, well, it doesn't work for me, but I'm not important. I think, generally speaking, I think it's problematic. And, you know, I don't know how you solve the problem when there are more and more EVs piling onto the road, less and less revenue coming. They're going to have to start taxing the electricity you put in your car at home. And that suddenly means that everybody who's come on and said, you know, what I love about EVs is they're just so cheap to run.
1: They're not going to be saying that in mm. whatever period of time it is. That's right. This is a moment in time, isn't it? And there's, n- there's no guarantee that'll last forever. Did you get any kind of sense from the people who had gone EV and were delighted, still delighted with that decision, that they had access to another car? Yeah, lots. Yeah. Lots of that. Yeah. Um,
0: and again, you know, that's a great luxury, isn't it? Huge luxury. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so... For a cert- so I th- said, so what can we conclude for this? For a certain sort of person, right now, today, mm. an EV can be a really, really good thing. An EV can absolutely transform um, your personal transport solutions. <laughs> 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 yes, well done. <laughs> but it can, because, you know, you go about your place in complete quiet and comfort. Um, it costs you buttons and whoopee. It's great, it works, but I just but it's there's nothing there is nothing I have seen from any of those responses that convinces me that this is the future for everybody who needs to go anywhere in a car. You know there will be little city cars, and they'll be absolutely fine because they don't need to have much range, uh, and there'll be huge Luxo barges with massive batteries which will go on go and go forever. Um, because the people who own them will be able to afford to charge them wherever they park them. But for the vast majority of people, you know, it's like in the middle who just need a car yeah. to do anything. You know, whether it is to, you know, go on holiday in the Lake District or take their kids to school or, you know, or whatever. Whatever you need a car to do. And that's most people, isn't it? You I know, mean, most of us just have a car and we do everything in it. Um, and, you know, and you live in a terrace house in a street And for the reasons of the cost of purchase, the likely future cost of running it, and this is even before we got into the residuals issues, um, I just don't see the answer is out there at the moment.
1: And I'll be very interested to see where we are five years from now. I feel like I'm seeing more and more cynicism around the viability of EVs for the the mass of the population I, I feel like i'm seeing more and more people question whether or not this really is the solution for all of us because yeah. as, as you said clearly for certain people fantastic yeah but you need to be able to afford a new car and then an, and an expensive one at that you probably need a driveway you probably maybe need access to another car um and it, it might just be because things are becoming more divided um, but i feel like i hear from more people saying it's going to implode in a few years um and i i, I don't know if that's the truth or not but there's certainly more of that kind of thinking out there um and th- th- another issue that we do have to address is that and actually gavin green wrote a piece about this for us very recently um you know a lot of these new big typically suv evs yeah way- they weigh they weigh Over, or only just under, 3,000 kilograms. Three tons. At three and a half, you need a different license.
0: I I don't even know where to go with that. I mean, it is so utterly profligate.
1: Yeah.
0: It's indefensible. Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, you are getting, presumably, if you buy one of these three tons cars the battery alone will weigh more than some cars yeah you know if you've got a 110 kilowatt battery i mean that's what half a ton it's probably a
1: catering in your battery isn't it it's more than that yeah yeah 110 i'd say it's about 700 kilos something (sighs) like that um where is the environmental (laughs) friendliness
0: in that (laughs) well in taking three tons yeah of raw material out of the earth well, it's, it's way more than that, isn't it? Because, you know, you, you, you lose so much of the production process. Um,
1: where's the sense in that? And then probably upgrading it in three years for the new model. <sighs> three tonnes. I just don't and, see and, it. And
0: also, and also and this is another story we're going to do. We're going to do. You've got a car that weighs three tonnes. Okay, there might not be anything coming out of its exhaust pipe. And we can argue about, you know, power generated in fossil fuel power stations like more and more of our power is, is developed by renew, renewables which is fine but th- when we talk about emissions people never talk about the emissions the particulate emissions from from tires and from brakes um, and if you've got a car that weighs three tons the amount of crap that it will shed mm. harmful stuff um these you know these microscopic bits that flake off your tires and flake off your brake um, you know that's a whole other thing coming in, and I think there is some EU legislation comes in which is going to um, try to control this. But there are just there are just so many issues, and I think you know I just think a three ton the three ton car is just wrong. It just yeah. it can't need to be that heavy, and I'm sure it is that way because it is cheaper to add weight than remove it. Yeah, it's just staggering, and easier, and also people just don't care enough. And also, I think they probably quite like the idea of well, I've got a three-ton car. Well, I mean, in there, you know, there are armoured personnel carriers which weigh less
1: than that. You know, imagine how that good that's going to be if I hit something in it. The trouble is, you probably will hit it because stopping three tons. Yeah, and what about the poor do you hit?
0: Yeah. So my wife got rear-ended the other day. Um, she was in a motor, she was on the motorway, and uh, the car in front stopped. She stopped. Car behind didn't stop. Mm. Now, it was an ancient Vauxhall Safira that went into the back of her um with fairly terminal consequences to the zafira but nobody was hurt or anything else um and you know it happens and that's probably what's a what's a 12 year old zafira weigh? i don't know 13 1400 kilos imagine that you know the car weighing twice as much as that came piling into the back of her that could have been serious that could have been quite a big accident um and people never talk about this stuff. People never think about it. I mean, and certainly, if you're going to buy a car, if you know, people are going to buy, well, I'm going to buy a 3 ton car, you're not going to think, oh, no, I better not do that because if I have an accident, I might hurt somebody else. Pfft.
1: What do you care? Well, do you know what? Another story that we are going to do is take a proper rigorous look at Euro NCAP, um, yeah. who award star ratings to all yes. new cars. Yes. Um, and you don't hear them talking about the weight of a car.
0: No, you don't. You never... you And, and, you know, and, and I think that NCAP, which I think is... A well-intended organisation, yeah. because what they tend to do is measure how a car performs when it's crashing. Yes, yeah. What yeah. it doesn't measure is the car's ability to not have that crash in the first place. And if you believe that prevention is better than cure, mm. um, then why aren't they? Mm. I mean, I've had this argument with various people, including Ncap, over the over the years. But I don't believe that they've ever published, for instance, brake distances. No. They how should. long does it actually take? You know, if you get a three-tonne SUV, how much further does it take to stop that from a given speed than a Volkswagen Golf weighing weighing, weighing half the weight? Now, actually, it'll have, you know, it'll have more rubber on the road. It'll have much bigger brakes. Um, Maybe it's not much. Maybe it's nothing. Um, I don't believe it's nothing, but why don't we know? Why aren't we told this stuff? Why don't people... Maybe we should do it. Um... Because, you know, if you're actually, and I'm not saying that you are, you have to be careful with these things, but if you are, if it turned out that you're actually far more likely to have the accident mm. in your three-ton SUV, then I think people would start questioning whether a three-ton SUV is necessarily a good thing. Mm. You know, buy one of these, you're, but if you buy one of these, you're more likely to crash.
1: You're going to think twice, aren't you? You'd hope so. You'd hope so. I think people view them, though, as safer places to be. They don't Look. think about the likelihood of actually having an accident because you can't stop the thing. And the But, also, other point... but, but, but nobody is stressing that point. Nobody is making that no. argument. No. Also, the, from X miles an hour, it might only go another 10 metres. But at the point at which a lighter car is stopped and you've got another 10 metres to go, you might still be doing 20-odd miles an hour. And if you hit someone or something or a very old car, that is fast enough in something with that much mass, that much momentum, to do serious damage. Um, so it, it's it's a question that definitely has to be asked. I saw someone make the point the other day, actually, someone who knows about these things. He said, um, yeah, they're heavy, but battery electric, lithium-ion, it's the best technology we've got at the moment. Um, and perhaps it is, but we know these cars can be made lighter. It's just difficult and costly. Um, and it might well be that what's needed, actually, is a much much better charge network so you don't need exactly a 700 kilo battery that's exactly it yeah that's that's the solution
0: yeah if there was a decent charging network if you knew that if you had an ev that wherever you went in it you'd be able to a find a charger without having to queue for it that it would work that it Mm. would charge your car from 20 to 80 percent in 15 minutes um which is enough time to you know have a quick grab a quick coffee and have a pee um and that you would never, you know, and that the car, and that you do, you'd be able to do, I don't know, a genuine 180 miles, so probably three hours driving um, between each of these visits. Well, you know, that's only even going to be a problem on longer runs. And you're probably going to want to break every three hours. It's no problem at all. Mm. But we are so far from that now.
1: Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. Mm. Interesting. Well, obviously, this discussion will roll on and on. Um, and, well, I look forward to having it. Yeah, okay. and, and, and if if you, dear
0: listener, um, are now, you know, shouting at us because mm. there's some vital point that we've missed, um, or whether you agree with us or whatever, just find a way of getting in touch with us. there are any number of ways you can do it. Um, you know, go and find that tweet. We'll be doing more stuff on this. Um just, just, just tell us what you think. We are so interested in what you guys think about what we talk about because you know, we are the last people in the world to presume that we have the answers to anything, let alone everything. It's just a couple mm. of blokes having a chat about what they think
1: about stuff and you know, tell us what you think. Yeah. And for me, for myself, I would like in, this, in the relatively near future, we've got two cars, I'd like for one of them to be an EV. I want my um, Golf GTI slash fun, usable daily car you know, I want that to be one of our cars. And I would like our other one to be an EV because we do drive through town a fair amount. And um, I think it would be good to be able to do that in an EV. Sadly, at the moment, it, w- it would be mostly Imogen's car. And the driving that she does for work, it doesn't quite suit an EV. So it's not going to happen immediately. But I can see a time fairly soon where we've got one petrol car, one EV. Yeah. And that covers all bases. Um, and that means you... But you,
0: but you are... Forgive me, but you're then one of the lucky ones because that means you're a two-car family and
1: you have off-street parking. We can charge here. Yeah, so it it, it works for you. It doesn't represent everybody, does it? No. Um, Good, okay. This one will ramble on and on. We look forward to hearing what you've got to say. Listener question coming up um, relating back to last week's episode. But before we do that, please go and rate and review the podcast. I say this every week, don't I? Actually, it's really important because... Good reviews, good ratings mean that the likes of Spotify, the likes of Apple Podcasts push our podcast to more people. That's how we find a bigger audience. It's crucial. So please go and do that. And thank you to everybody Uh, who has. And by finding a bigger audience means we get to do more of this. Much, much more, yeah. Yeah. Um, So this listener question this week comes from Marcus. Uh, So last week we spoke about the 10 must-see motorsport events around the world. Yeah. Um, And... Clearly, you know Bathurst was on there. Clearly, it's not the sort of thing someone can just go and choose to go and do one weekend. Um, You you can't just toddle off to the Dakar every every time you (laughs) want. So, Marcus wants to have um, a few suggestions from us for um, events in the UK that are affordable to to get to. So, must see motorsport events in the UK on a budget.
0: Okay. Um, Well, where should we start? Um, Well, I mean, okay, I'm I'm a huge historic racing fan um go to a clubby just go to a little you know people think of historic racing they think of the you know the goodwood you know revival or the silverstone classic and you know they, they, these are amazing events um but you don't have to go to one of those to see you can you, can go, you get a you know, cadwell park or castle coombe or and just stand on the back you know historic racing happens somewhere in the country almost every weekend during the season uh and if you haven't gone and seen old sheds slithering around it's just Mm. fantastic because you can see the drivers working the cars are so demonstrative they move so much um if you like watching cars going sideways and being able to see real car control going on um particularly if the weather forecast is going to be bad go stand on the bank somewhere at some (laughs) little club circuit it'll cost you nothing to get in or no probably nothing or hardly anything and you'll just have so much fun and go and get a bacon sarny from the van and and and
1: that's all you need go with a mate and a flask of coffee and have a great day um so my first suggestion is actually marcus suggested it himself and he's absolutely right get across to Lydden hill which is basically in holland um it's the far end of <laughs> kent so it is a long way it's a long yeah. old way to get to Lydden hill um but go there for one of the big rally cross meets where they've got the supercars running. Lyddon Hill is the home of Rallycross. It was invented there in the 60s. It was, wasn't it? And it's still a fantastic spot. It's who, in a won, who won the first Rallycross event, and what was he in? Vic Alfred, 911. There you go. <laughs> You're good, Dad. Not You're bad. good. <laughs> we should do a podcast or something. Um, so get, yeah, wherever you stand at Lyddon Hill, you can basically see the whole track. Um, and they've got, they'll have got they have the supercars going around, which are 600 horsepower, four-wheel drive things mega mega quick and they're fantastic to watch and there'll be some old stuff knocking about as well uh so Lyndon hill riley cross that's on my list uh where are we going uh oh well somewhere
0: local to me uh or reasonably local um Shelsley walsh yeah hill climb brilliant the oldest motorsport venue in the world still in use older than the brickyard older than indy um, that's Great. i think they started motorsport events there in if someone's going to tell me I'm wrong, Nine hundred seven, nine hundred eight, something like that. If you haven't been to a hill climb, uh, A, they're fantastic things to go and watch because you get, you get the most incredible variety of cars there from the, you know, the unbelievably rapid sort of golds and things like yeah. that, which are, which accelerate faster than Formula One cars. And they are driven by nutcases um, to homemade stuff, you know, old specials, you know, everything people. And also it's a very easy thing to go and do yourself. Um, people, you know, they have these sort of run what you've events and you can just turn up in anything and it takes, well, I think the good guys get up Shelsley Walsh in about 23 seconds now. Um, It might take you or me slightly longer, but the real point is going is there's just the most wonderful atmosphere and I'm not just saying, you know, there are hill climb venues all over um, the country. I I mentioned Shelsley Walsh and also Prescott because they're the two that are sort of most famous and they also happen to be closest to me, so they're the ones that I go to most. But on a sunny um weekend, I know having this conversation in January when it 's been one of the wetter starts of the year that I've ever been it it sounds like a bit of a dream, but you know on a sunny summer 's weekend to go there with a picnic and your family mm. or your mates and sit on the grass and just it 's like watching motorsport from another era um it 's just so charming and there 's so much atmosphere. It's pretty exciting too. It's just a lovely day, and and if there is somebody in your life who really isn't interested in cars or motorsport that sort of thing, and you couldn't get them to go to Silverstone for love nor money, but you, um, if they're ever going to enjoy any kind of you know affordable viewing of motorsport, just take them to Shelsley or to Prescott, Mm. park them on the lawn, um,
1: pack a nice picnic, and if they don't enjoy that, then give up. There's There's nothing they ever will. So be it. Yeah. Um, do you know what I love about places like Chelsea is, back in 1908 or whatever, when the hill climb discipline was created. Think about those cars that were, yeah, pootling up there. And the point about hill climb was to demonstrate that the cars could get to the top. Exactly. Yes. <laughs>
0: Literally, <laughs> Literally to slowly... get up there. Well, forget the time.
1: Literally getting up there was the achievement. Just imagine how slowly they were going. And now there are. I don't know how powerful those Goulds are, but they are uh, phenomenal. Six hundred horsepower. Yeah, and and, they, they,
0: and and their their tires are made out of marmalade because yeah. you know they've only got a they've only well a they've got to heat up unbelievably rapidly mm. and they've only got to last for twenty five seconds yeah well then they, they, they reuse them and they reuse them and they reuse them but you know but yes I mean
1: they yeah it's it, they're so specialised those cars mm. I just I just love how motorsport has evolved it, it's like the Isle of Man TT you know when that started on little mo- motorbikes with no power. Um, They probably seem quite sensible. No one thought that they'd be averaging 133 miles an hour around that place. Um, It's just extraordinary how these things have progressed. Uh, Okay, so the last one I'll give you is... I've actually not done this, but I'm really keen to, because it looks... Well, what did we say last week? The three tests. Spectacle, atmosphere, history. Um, Yep. Top fuel dragsters at Santa Pod. (laughs) For spectacle, it must be out of this world. When, when, When those things launch off the line my god um not to 100 under a second <laughs> it's just exploding off the line they're like cannonballs aren't they um i'm sure it's a great atmosphere and well drag racing it's as old as the motor car, isn't it talk about history so yeah it, when you when you go i mean the first time i went i saw a top field dragster
0: launch. I, what you cannot convey if you watch it on youtube uh obviously you can see it and you can hear the noise they make but quite literally the ground shakes when they go <sighs> to the extent that the first time i went and the first time they went off the line all the car alarms in the car park went off <laughs> you also can't convey the smell of the fuel the nitromethanol mm. these things run on it gets everywhere um you taste it so really all your senses you know taste smell sights out the lot you get it is total sensory overload. and if you manage to sort of stand behind one of these things and watch it disappear it's like it's like witchcraft it's like watching science fiction it is it is so ridiculous
1: mm. um yeah, yeah wow. absolutely right go get us out of the pod go and watch a drag race some good suggestions in there i think so marcus thank you for your question Keep getting your listener questions across however you like on Twitter on Instagram, whatever else. Um, and we'll end next week's episode with another. Lovely. See ya.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.